Yep. Glad to be back on the show with you today. Yeah, me too. This is this is going to be a unique, interesting episode for us. This is going to be really fun because it's not just us here today. We are also joined by Dan Charnas, oh. who is the author of what was called Work Clean and is just being republished as... Everything in its place. Yes. The life-changing power of Mison Plus. So we're super excited to talk about this book today. Uh, I found it kind of in an interesting way. I have a good friend who's a really high-end productivity coach for entrepreneurs. And he said this is one of the two books that he makes all of his clients read. My God. That's fantastic. <laughs> I need to meet this guy. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to connect you guys afterwards. But that was like very high praise from him. And he was basically like getting things done and work clean were two of his main things that he was telling people to read. I feel like crying. <laughs> <laughs> so I got super excited. I went home and read it. This was only, I think, a month and a half ago. I went home and read it right after I told Neil we had to do this episode on it. And then yep. he reached out to you and you were doing this republishing and everything worked out perfectly. Well, and it's funny, too, how like things tend to just sort of kind of work out good, you know, right time, right place kind of thing. Yeah. So with the business I have is a company, we basically create custom beer for people. And one of our customer clients is restaurants. So as Nat mentioned that this is like how chefs organize their time. And I was like, okay, well, even if I don't get anything else out of it, I'll like learn more about how chefs work. And I'm like talking to a bunch of them these days. So, you know, you get a better sense for how, what the culture is like. So I went and read it and then I was like, okay, literally every page in this book is like relevant <laughs> to the problems that I'm having right now. So yeah, I found it to be incredible. And then we had to do an episode on it. So, yeah. so great. So, so I'm so glad to be here. In so, my conference room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having us over today. So what motivated you to write it in the first place? Well, um, I became an executive very young in my 20s. Um, I worked for a division of Warner Brothers for a, a pretty famous record producer named Rick Rubin, who had yeah. started a joint venture with Warner Brothers. And I became you know, essentially the head of the rap department, the head of the one-person rap department. <laughs> And, um, you know, I had several projects to juggle in various stages of development. And one thing that I had really never done was manage corporate projects, you know, to the extent that a, a, a cool record company can be corporate. But, uh, you know, it, it was. There were lots of different moving parts and lots of things to do every day. And, you know, I, I'm a Virgo. So I'm also um, sort of organized by nature or rather I, I fetish organization. Yeah. I may not be always very organized by nature, but I want to get myself into a state that's better than where I am. I guess that's that is sort of this endless striving for doing it better that I identify Interesting. with. And I actually think Virgo. we didn't mention to you, this to you before, but actually it's this has become sort of a theme almost on this show recently. Uh, a yeah. bunch of the books that we've covered – uh, might be ones you're familiar with. So like The Goal. Have you heard of The Goal? I have not. Okay. That one's a really interesting book. It's kind of this using the theory of constraints. Yeah. And it introduces the theory of constraints as a way of like continual business improvement by identifying the main bottlenecks in the system and systematically improving them. Uh, you're right. I didn't think of it at the time. There's a lot, there's of, a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling I'm going to have a whole new reading list. But yeah, oh, you will. <laughs> yeah, and that and it's not just for business. Uh, you know, probably we should give that caveat. But it's, yeah. I mean, the examples they give in that book tend to be yeah. more business oriented. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm getting right out of here, and I'm yeah. getting it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. So I became right. an executive, a young executive, and I started casting about for 
methods of organizing. Um, and the big popular method at the time in the 1990s was Stephen Covey's uh, mm-hmm. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then he followed that with this book called First Things First, which was really interesting to me because it was a what he called a principle-centered organization method, meaning it's not just about, you know, what's urgent. It's about what's important. And I believe it may have been Stephen Covey who sort of rediscovered what is now called the Eisenhower matrix, which is a basically a, a four-square grid with two axes. One of the axes is importance and the other is urgency. So it's divided into four quadrants. And what Stephen Covey was essentially arguing is that we can do the important and we can do the urgent But often it is the urgent that pushes the important out of the way. And what he was trying to get us to do is focus in that second quadrant, that important but not necessarily urgent work that gives us our fulfillment in our lives. And so I followed that process for many years um, and found that even though I had this wonderful process, it often defeated me. Mm -hmm. And then this sort of fetishing of organizational system continued as I moved out of the music business and back into writing. I eventually went to get my master's at Columbia Journalism School and um, ended up coming out of there with a book contract to write a sort of a huge business history of hip hop from 1968 to 2008. Sitting in my mailbox right now. There you go. When I get back, it arrived today. (laughs) So that's the book that became the big payback. Um, But all through this time, you know, again, I am trying different systems. Of course, after Covey, it was this idea of using the Palm Pilot and Mm. syncing between different tools and um, having these long list programs that you could have on your computer and on your phone. And then there was also David Allen's Getting Things Done, which I found to be great. But all of those things, in a way, failed me. Or rather, I failed them. And that's where the story sort of leads to the culinary world. Because all through this time of me as an executive, as an author, as a student, searching for sort of that perfect organizing system, I'm for just pleasure, I'm reading about the lives of chefs. When I say books by chefs, I don't mean cookbooks. I actually mean books that are about what it takes to be a chef, become a chef, stay a chef. So, What are some of the ones you were reading? Right. So Michael Ruhlman's The Making of a Chef, which is basically he was a a writer of nonfiction narrative, a journalist, going into the CIA and rolling as a student and going through the program to write about it, to write about that process. And it was just... A fascinating book. And then, you know, pairing that with something like uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential with Bill Buford's Heat. Um, These are all, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of like the, you know what I would compare to? It's like watching The Godfather. Yeah. (laughs) On the one hand, you have this sort of audacious, almost gangsterish existence, right? These guys and women live. And on the other hand, there's this code. There's this incredible discipline yep. right yep. you know rules to live by under pain of death yeah. right yep. yeah. or injury yeah. right so what this code was fascinated me and at, at the time that I really started to think about it I had gone back into the corporate world I was uh, the editorial director of a, a large uh, web 
company like running five different websites and now i had a staff of 12 young people you know that i had to direct every day and i had key performance indicator meetings and staff <laughs> meetings and project <laughs> meetings and sales meetings yep. and you know that'll defeat any system and yet i'm reading about what life is like in the kitchen where essentially we don't waste each other's time and we never let each other down oh man what you know, <laughs> what a great way to live. And that way of living, you know, has a name. Uh, and the name is mise en place. And it derives that name from basically a process by which chefs get themselves ready for service or cooks get themselves ready for service. Mise en place is French for to put in place, right? So your mise en place as a noun is essentially, or rather as a place noun, is the little bins and buckets and things in front of you where you have all of your prepared ingredients so that you can plant your feet in one place and have everything you need around you to create an evening of meals, yep. right? Yeah. And maybe even another shift if you have enough mies. As Wiley Dufresne, uh, the chef, once said, if you have enough mies on place, theoretically you can cook forever, right? Yeah. You just keep your arms and moving, right? And your feet planted. It's a brilliant concept. But yeah. then there's yeah. this yeah. other idea of me is this other noun right uh and it's not about a place it's about a, a mindset right it's about having this sort of mental organization in which your brain is not only you know not only sort of monitors a list of things to do but also understands when those things are supposed to happen in order to have them happen with the least waste possible yep and that's another thing sort of this beautiful thing started to come out when you really sort of read these chef narratives and then of course as i did end up talking to cooks and chefs this is this beautiful idea of conservation right why run yourself ragged for five hours if you could do just five minutes of work to make sure you don't make mistakes and have to do all these extra errands why run to the grocery store three times when you can go once and then there's this idea of sort of caring for the resources around you you know let's not waste the other parts of the chicken let's use those parts in some way let's not throw those celery hearts away or the celery tops away let's use them for stock right and then there's this idea of not uh you know wasting space and of course living in new york it's right. a really important yeah. <laughs> notion like you know small spaces are actually better small kitchens are actually better because you don't have to move your feet you just stay in one place and then even beyond that, there's this idea of saving mental energy and then saving people, like putting the right person in the right place for the right job. And so having this revelation while I'm at one of the most wasteful, poorly run, mercenary corporate media jobs was really a revelation. And so I started to think about it in terms of technology. Okay, well, you know, one of the things that chefs do, at least in my mind at that time, was, you know, they think not only in terms of the task, they also think in terms of the time to do them. So is there some sort of software that I can develop? And, you know, that, that I hadn't quite done that yet. And then, my God, I don't know when I finally decided that this was the thing I wanted to do. But I think it was, it was sort of around the time that I left that job. I started to think about, hey, you know, I want to read more about Mise en Place, but there isn't a book. Yeah. Yep. Imagine that. There's this whole system that's, 
practiced essentially by oral tradition all over the world. Culinary schools talk about it. There's not even a textbook about mise en place. So with a bit of audacity and some courage, I pitched this book and I did it as sort of a at the same time did it as an NPR a piece for NPR where I could go into, into kitchens and sort of have some access and talk to the best chefs possible and at the same time thinking about it as more of an extended meditation on what mise en place is because the system had never been codified yeah. hmm. and chefs that I spoke to initially in this period didn't even think about codifying it so I kind of had to to divine that from speaking to them. So all of this happened, you know, over a course of, say, 10 years. But it, was, it wasn't until, say, 2014 that I began to work on this project in earnest. And then the book came out in 2016. It's exactly. very cool. That's like some of the themes that you just hit on there. Are, I feel like there would be a whole episode worth of questions just to, yeah, just well, to go over some of those. Like, I mean, I think the biggest thing, especially at the end that you just said, where the chefs hadn't even codified this themselves... Something that comes to mind for me there is like, I feel like even in reading the book, chefs were all sort of talking around the idea that you were able to sort of put into place. And it almost took an outsider to be able to codify that. Because we, we've, this has come up on several episodes before where it's like, if you're doing something day to day, you almost don't think about the mechanics of that. Yeah. This just kind of happens. Yeah, right. well, well, listen, I mean, I think this is a book that Tony Bourdain definitely could have done if he had ever had, had the mind down to, to do it. You know, this is something I think that Michael Roman could have done maybe even better than I did. But I do think that there is something to being an outsider when it comes to mise en place, especially because, man, chefs and cooks have their head in the work. You know, and even when they are, they go out of the kitchen and they have their own corporate organizations like Jean-Georges or Thomas Keller, you know, their head is still in that work too. And they're not thinking about mise en place for the rest of the world. They're just trying right. to run their organizations. But for me, how can we get this technology to everybody? Right. You know, it's my thing. <laughs> and then, of course, which we'll, we'll speak about this, I think, a little later, but the idea that... To come back to those, do the systems fail you or do you fail the systems? Mm. The real upshot of mise en place, which I define as a way of relating to and conserving space, energy, motion, resources, time, and people, right? Uh, you know, the mise en place essentially is a way of life and that it takes a tremendous amount of commitment and work and that it is a system in and of itself but you can use mise en place to run any system but essentially in order for it to run it's ultimately an inside job it's ultimately up to you to do it so wherever you go you just end up running back into yourself <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is there are no magic systems magic bullets there is no great algorithm that's going to free us from this incredible soul-sucking tide of email and social media. <laughs> Ultimately, it is about cultivating our inner discipline. And well, that's, again, the toughest thing for any human being to do. It's just for the folks who work in kitchens, it's the only way to live, right? And when we are in the corporate world, we don't live by the second hand or the minute hand. 
we live by the calendar and a lot of things are fudgeable when you live in the corporate world. Oh, I didn't do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. I'll do it the day after. Yep. I gave myself 30 things to do on my to-do list today and I only did five of them. I'll push the other 25 off. You can't really do that in the culinary world. You can't really say, well, dinner was supposed to be at six, but I'll make it at nine. Yeah. <laughs> you want to have a business. Um, so there is a certain level of commitment to reality that culinarians have that I think we miss in the corporate world simply because we don't necessarily need that crazy level of commitment. But what do we lose? Yeah. What do we lose? You know, I mean, I had a boss who would come by my desk and say, uh, hey, Dan, you got a second? And I would get up from my desk, go into his office. And as I was going into his office, he said, he said, I'll be right back. And then he would go off sometimes for, you know, <laughs> he just wouldn't come back. Okay. <laughs> now, what are we doing to each other? Yep. You know, cooks cannot do that to each other in a kitchen. Right? right. A chef can't, won't do that to a cook and a cook won't do that to a chef. There is a certain code of behavior. And that's what I'm trying to get at in Work Clean, that we can adopt some of those really good habits and really good behaviors. There's a way to do it. And so I'm trying to light a way for people. And the centerpiece of that is a habit that I'll call the daily means, which is 30-minute commitment to focusing on setting your own mise en place. And I know from personal experience and I, you know, anecdotally, I've never done a survey on this, but I, I think that people don't do this. I think that people spend more time brushing their teeth and bathing themselves and dressing themselves than they do on really organizing their days. Yeah. And it's our lifeblood, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Totally. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, kind of related to that, one of the things that I really enjoyed from the book is that, because to be fair, most books about higher output and, you know, quote unquote productivity, they don't end up delivering that much or they give like a couple little tips just on getting a few things done. But what I loved about this was how it's, like you said, that system that you can apply in so many areas. And there's a micro level and a macro level as yeah. well. You know, there's the micro level. Okay. There's daily me's like closing your tabs on your computer. Like there's the micro things you can do, but then there's the, almost the metaphysical me's of just getting your brain in order as right. well, right? And how you I, think about that. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, it is for me fundamentally, even like if you take the highest view of what this thing is, mm-hmm. it's really about a system that doesn't include the mind as well as the body is not a system that's going to work. Let me, let me see if I can explain it. David Allen's Getting Things Done system is a fantastic system. And I have learned a great deal from that system. But it is a system that exists solely in mind. What do I mean by that? I mean that what David Allen doesn't really talk about, and this is not necessarily his fault, right? It's just there is also a body that has to execute these tasks, not just a mind. The body has to be in a certain place. And the body has to overcome the raging neuroses of each of our minds, right? In one of the chapters, I talk about the six or seven things that stop us, right? How do we get stopped? And the fact is that any system that doesn't account for that, right? Any system that doesn't account for the ways that we, that our bodies actually work and that the way our bodies interact with our minds is not a system that's going to be long-term for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Well, and that's where kind of going back to the micro-macro, like you said, it's, it is helpful in that it 
you know, it can be applied on the daily task level, but also in the like order life level where it's like, if you can remove some of those distractions, right? Because like getting things done doesn't cover, you know, hey, turn off your notifications, right? But having something on both levels is really helpful. And I, I don't know, I, one of the strange things, it didn't feel like a huge part of the book, but that ended up being really useful to me was just using sort of mise en place as a anxiety reduction <laughs> yeah. where I started yeah. doing that as soon as I felt like I was getting overwhelmed with work where I just said, okay, I'm just going to straighten everything up right yep. here. You're going to give me that test before I even read And it was yeah. before I'd read the book. He'd read the book, but I hadn't. So in an episode, I was talking about how like, I was like, oh yeah, sometimes like when I'm too busy, like my desk starts getting crazy messy or yeah. something. And Nat was like, yeah, well, if you just take the time to like straighten it up, it'll actually clear up your mind as well. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go try that. And it actually worked. It worked and then for I, you? Yeah. And then How I, about you, Nat? Yeah. It yeah. Works all, and that's it, my default behavior now. If I start to like, feel overwhelmed is to clean everything up and especially to clean out my task manager yeah. a bit. Right. Say, okay, you know, how can I reprioritize these a bit? Maybe remove a few that right. I don't actually have to get done today. What's the most important stuff that yep. I should be doing right, right. now? Because you're not just a mind. You're a body, too. Yeah. Right. So your body is in space. Your eyes, which are part of your body, are seeing the clutter. And... Despite the the funny little quips about messy mind, uh, yeah, you know, empty mind, <laughs> empty desk, empty mind, here, you know, <laughs> the fact of the matter is I think it really does affect us. I mean, I saw this just with myself. I had over the weekend, I had not done my mees, my daily mees. And I noticed that I didn't want to go near my desk last night because mm. it was messy because I didn't want to deal with it. The that was more instinctual? It, Did you feel that almost like instinctually? Or was oh, it your brain saying like, oh, don't go It was it. instinctual. Yeah. It was just like, I don't want to go over there because I know I'm going to have to deal with that. So the more we are cognizant of that and the more we can do, okay, one thing at a time, you know, I'm going to attack this pile. It, it is, it's a very sort of anxiety reducing way to approach organizational work yeah. yeah and we'll get to these ingredients in a second but i had one other question related to that actually right, so do you have any kind of like um and i think you maybe alluded to this in the book a little bit but did you have some kind of like zen background or have you studied <laughs> zen buddhism i never all, studied zen buddhism but i've been a yoga teacher and practitioner for almost 30 years okay so yeah. um I was about to say it's about been about twenty, actually twenty twenty two for teaching, a little more for you know practicing. You know, I first started to do meditation, transcendental meditation in my twenties. I was into introduced to Kundalini yoga a little bit thereafter, and a part of that uh, lifestyle is what they call a daily sadhana. Right. Huh. Uh, sadhana is uh, just a daily practice. Right. It's something that you do. Every day without fail. I remember talking to people. This is when I lived in Los Angeles. And I say, oh, you know, I, I do yoga. So oh, where do you do it? I said, well, I do it at home. Right. Every day. It's not a class that you go to and you take and you strap your backpack on and put the <laughs> towel over your neck and wipe your brow. No, it's, it's about a practice that you do every day that you subject yourself to without fail and without excuse. Right. And it, it could be as little as 10 minutes. But it's that showing up for yourself every day that if you're a spiritual person, that is God, right? Yep. You showing up for yourself every day is God. Yeah. We, so the reason I brought that up actually is, uh, we covered Way of Zen by Alan Watts a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. And, uh, there were a bunch of concepts from that that seemed to manifest themselves in work clean. Like what? 
So like one of the things is like uh, in Zen, they focus on these minute, seemingly minute tasks, one right. of which could be cleaning. Yeah. Right. And they sort of that's their way of finding enlightenment. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you almost lose yourself in the task. Right. And that seems to shine through and work clean as well. It's like by starting doing, you know, just even straightening things out yeah. and focusing on that, yeah. you that anxiety just falls away. Oh, well, listen, in the Japanese chefs that I spoke to, I mean, you can see it there. See, yeah. um, and uh, Dogen, the, uh, you know, the, the Japanese uh, monk who wrote, you know, sort of the way of the, the kitchen way back in the day. It is. It's sort of those two practices are very, very linked. Very intertwined. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like the maybe the next part that we should jump into yeah. then is some of these actual techniques or what you call ingredients from the book, Yes, which I thought was a very fun way to lay it out where it moves through these 10 ingredients right. of mise en place. And is it the same 10 ingredients in the republishing? Yes. Yeah, the okay. text is completely the same. Okay. Right. The okay. Yeah, so <laughs> either, either or folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I thought that, you know, it's, it's nice because you've got these great stories from these different chefs illustrating it and then you explain it and then later in the actual yeah. uh, kind of the ending of the book, it's bringing it all together into yeah. that personal system. So that's we talked about a few of these. That's also a, a part of the, the journalist part of me is that I didn't want this to just be uh, a self-help book that's sort of, you know, coming from this one crazy person writing <laughs> about mise en place and here are all my great ideas. It really has to be the voice of chefs. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them too, because, uh, you there know, a lot. different yeah. chefs have different expertise and there's some chefs who you know, really focus on space and there are others who focus on managing people. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk to Eric Repair, that's a Buddhist monk right there. I mean, you know, it, very different from sort of talking to somebody like a Dwayne LaPuma at the CIA who's all about, you know, teaching, you know, yeah. hands-on teaching. And I suppose we should mention, too, for anyone listening who doesn't know, we're talking about the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I always good find, clarification. Yeah, exactly. I guess. Yeah. In this headspace, I, I never think to make that distinction. Yeah. And then I mention it to someone, and they give me that look, like, "What?" <laughs> Especially these folks, these days, folks. You know. Yeah. So we've got these. We got these ten ingredients. Was there a strategy to the ordering, or was it? Is it yes. by importance or by how you go through them in the day? Yeah. So just to go through them, um, everything starts with planning. So planning is prime is the first ingredient. And that is about really ordering the mind and ordering events in time. Then the next two ingredients, arranging spaces, perfecting movements, and then cleaning as you go are literally about physical space, mm-hmm. right? Then ingredients four and five, making first moves and finishing actions, are about process. How do you start and how do you finish? And each, they're related, but they're actually different things and different challenges. Then the next ingredient, slowing down to speed up, is really, it's about time, but it's almost about this really quantum notion of time. You know, how does the mind digest time. And then um, the next uh, two, actually next three are really about awareness, open eyes and ears, call and call back. It's about communication, inspect and correct. Again, about awareness. Um, how do we get to perfection and how does communication engender perfection? 
And then the ingredient, the 10th ingredient that sort of wraps it all up is this concept of total utilization. Where do we want to be at the end of this road once we start planning? What we're going for is total utilization. Total utilization. And you never get there. Yeah. But it's the goal, it's right? The goal, it's the unattainable yeah. goal. So no wasted space, no wasted motion, no wasted time, no wasted resource, no wasted person. So those are the 10 ingredients. So which of them have you found to have had the most impact on your personal Ooh. output, mental clarity? Take that whatever direction you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of them, but frankly, mm-hmm. surprisingly for me, uh, making first moves. Because it is in the Making First Moves chapter that I think the real nugget of this work clean system, you know, this mise en place system comes into focus. It is in some way very different from, say, a Stephen Covey or a David Allen approach to time, right? Mm -hmm. Because in Covey and Allen, time is linear, right? But for chefs... Chefs sort of have a dual view of time, right? And they don't always necessarily voice it this way, right? Sometimes they'll say, you know, there's stuff that, you know, needs my hands on and there's stuff that, you know, I don't have to have my hands on. So I have like hands on time and hands off time. But what I began to see was that there are actually, you know, sort of two dual, dual time, like two sort of lines going parallel to each other. Uh, there's the stuff that I am immersed in, right? That my hands are on. And then there's the process stuff that actually doesn't need my hands on it. That happens while I'm not working. But it is how you go in and out of these two time modes that governs your effectiveness. And why is this different from, say, a Stephen Covey? Here's why. There's the story that Stephen Covey tells in his book, First things first. And it was hugely impactful on me, right? It's the story of the teacher who goes in front of a a class of, you know, class folks and he has a box of different objects and out of the box he takes this jar, glass jar, big glass jar. And then he has a a bunch of big rocks, like boulders or whatever, little boulders, big rocks, little boulders. (laughs) And One by one, he takes those big rocks and he puts them into the jar, the glass jar, until they're poking out the top. And maybe he fits seven in, right? So maybe he fits seven in. And he asks the class, is the jar full? And the class says, yes. And then out of his box, he takes these little pebbles. And he pours the pebbles and the pebbles fill all the little spaces in between the big rocks. And then they start spilling out the top. He says, is the jar full now? And everybody goes, yes, now it's full. And then he takes some sand and he pours the sand, which fills the spaces in between the big rocks and the pebbles. And it goes all the way up to the top. And he says, now is it full? And people are like, yes. (laughs) And then he takes a jug of water. (laughs) <laughs> and he pours the water into the sand and it soaks the sand in between the spaces of the yeah. the big rocks and the little rocks. And and so he says, is it full now? Nobody's willing to say anything. He says, <laughs> yeah. say, so what's the moral of the story here? Somebody raises their hand and says, the moral of the story is that you can always fit more in. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is if I didn't put the big rocks in first, how was I ever going to get anything else in, right? 
And uh, that's the aha moment from the Stephen Covey first things first way of thinking. And it hugely colored the way I thought about things because, okay, every day, now I've got to start with that big thing, right? So if I have a principle-centered organization, like Covey says, then I have got to do those big things first. So, for example, I'm working on two books right now. So my instinct in that Covey world is to, of course, I'm going to do this I've got to do this, uh, you know, my writing first, because if I don't do it, then I'm going to get distracted a little later on. I'll get immersed in all this other, you know, little piddly stuff and I will, I won't be able to get to it. And that may be true. And I have found that to be true sometimes, but a chef cannot think like that, right? Let me give you an example from the chef's world. The big rock for a young culinary student is these knife cuts, right? Because knife cuts are really hard to do and they take a lot of time. They're immersive, right? So your instinct as a culinarian is to just go right in and get those vegetables and cut, 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 and just to get it done, right? Yeah. So that you get it done before you have to finish the meal. And the culinary student will look up from having now done these knife cuts and realize that they have 10 minutes left. Plenty of time, but not enough time to get that oven hot. Mm, Because what they should have done is a little process time before the immersive time to let processes happen with their hands off. Yep. Right? Um, You know, I needed to get the rice made, right? But if I wait to the end of the service period, I don't have time to make that rice. I don't have time to train anybody to make the rice. So... That was my aha moment after talking, spending, you know, a year and a half, two years talking to these chefs. Like, wow, what Covey misses, essentially, is this real dual nature of time and the difference between immersive tasks and process tasks. And that the more you manage, right, if you're the the more man, more tasks you manage, the more people you manage, the more you need to make process time for Mm -hmm. yourself. I cannot as an editor with 12 reporters or writers working under me at the website, I can't just spend the first half of my day immersed in writing my column (laughs) because this one's waiting for me to have the invoices signed off on. And if the invoices don't get signed off on by the time that the accountant leaves, they're not going to get paid, right? right? And then I have to wait another week or whatever. Um, There's a whole bunch of people waiting for me to give them directions so that they can do what they need to do for me to deliver by the end of the day, right? right? So... It is not big rocks first all the time, right? We have to balance process and immersive time. And so when we talk about making first moves, you have to work on this dual a worldview of time, of immersive time, the hands-on time, and process time, things that just need me to start them so that I can multiply my work. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. We both recently started managing people for the first time in our respective companies. And like that has been the biggest, biggest takeaway as well from, at least for me from this book also was that, you know, when I think both of us like doing deep work first, that's like, and so we, I think, I don't know about you, but I was always work better in the morning usually. So I would love to start my day take on a big task, work for like three hours, two or three hours, and then look up and be like, oh, does anyone need anything? But then you find out people are waiting on you for something. And so now that's kind of the first thing I do is a quick 10, 15 minute check-in. Is there anything I need to unblock for anybody? Yeah. Right. And then I can go into my deep work time. 
but just taking a few minutes to do that on blocking. Yeah. And I mean, we're only managing a couple, at least I'm only managing a couple people. Uh, but I think you're right. The more people you have, it's like the more you need to think about that because you could unblock something that might free up 12 people. Yeah. And that's, and that's really, it's sort of the challenge of our, of our era, right? Because we are interrupted so often that our, the ability to even focus, it's challenged by our office environment. It's challenged by our devices. It's challenged as it always has been by people around us. Yeah. Uh, and it's challenged by our own monkey mind as, as the (laughs) yogis say. (laughs) So we have to manage all those things. And again, if we look for guidance, chefs have been dealing with this stuff. Why not listen to chefs? How does a chef deal with it? Well, a chef, culinary students say the difference between a cook and a chef is that a cook just sees his or her station. A chef sees the entire kitchen. And so you do have to, and we have to sort of really try to figure out the difference between multitasking which really doesn't work, and I guess what I'll call periscoping, right? Mm. Which is coming up very frequently and listening for triggers or looking Mm. for triggers to come up from being submerged in our immersive work so that we can do the little process tasks, so that we can unblock other people, so we can unblock ourselves, right? And then kind of get back down. And it is... I mean, that's a full-time job. That is, yeah. That's, a, that's why people have assistants, right? <laughs> you know, but we, obviously we can't afford that. You so, know, have people, you, so have you tried implementing the system in a large-scale organization, like from basically a system that, like not a brand new system, right? So a system that already was in existence, a company or a team, and then tried to like bring this in. And if you have what's sort of the process that you saw and what went right, what went wrong? You know, the, the quick way to answer your question is I haven't yet, although it's, it's definitely as I continue to do this work and continue to write about it, it's been very much on my mind. But here's the question that that brings up. How do you teach a culture? Right. It's easy to yeah. teach a system, but this is more than just a system. It's a culture. It's a system that is backed up by individual behaviors and habits reinforced by community. And my argument about mise en place is that everybody has their own personal mise en place. And you can even have your own personal mise en place if you're in a crazy, chaotic company. My prediction is that anybody who has a serious mise en place, personal mise en place, personal sense of work ethic, um, that's what I mean by work ethic, right? You know. And you're in a company that does not value those things, you are going to feel very much like you want to get out of there mm-hmm. pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. I think that's a great point. Um, but there may be people who are receptive to you or that you find are sort of simpatico with the sort of not wasting time, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that there's some organizations who are getting there. There are organizations who are understanding the, you know, the fetishing the open work space is not fantastic. <laughs> that, um, <laughs> yeah. The idea of meetings being a colossal waste of of man hours. Uh, You know, people are really just starting to understand that. But, you know, also a lot of the reasons that we continue to have meetings and other time wasters in the corporate world is that a lot of people aren't interested in getting better. Right. Yeah. It's a good way to hide your lack of productivity. Oh, my God. Call a meeting. Absolutely call a meeting. Right. Um, (laughs) It's definitely a way to offload. It's a way to look busy. It's a way to look important. So I think in order to do it, it really has to, there's some bottom up stuff that needs to happen and there's some top down stuff that needs to happen. 
bottom up is, you know, people have to accept and learn the habits. And then the top down stuff is, I think the more that the organization sees this as a cultural therapy rather than an efficiency mechanism is better. Mm-hmm. I think efficiency can result. But again, part of the reason that people are going so bonkers is that we are focusing on efficiency. You know, like what I mean by no wasted time is not the Amazon.com approach of right. making sure that everybody, you know, like how fast can you get the assembly line to go? Well, that is simply not a holistic way. That's not mise en place. Right, yeah. that's, that's, that's something else. Mise en place is the valuing of people and giving them space and time to do something with their minds, right? Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, I was more I mean, I kind of curiosity. thought we were talking about it, which is that in some ways, I don't know, how much of you, how deep are you into sort of like agile, lean methodologies? I've, you know, I've been in many companies where those have been used. Yeah, because this feels like a much saner, more approachable version of some of the agile stuff and some of its best practices. How so? Uh, I just, because I've been reading a little bit more about it recently, uh, since I've been also trying to implement some of the lessons with my team. And I actually just think kind of similar to what you used to do, where I'm managing a big team of writers, editors, uh, sort of project managers across a bunch of different sites. Yeah. And so with some of these things, you know, we try to, you know, one, keep all of our editorial calendar management clean as we're going, uh, trying to make sure that we're unlocking people as soon as possible. And then at the same time, it's almost scrum based where we're pulling next steps across the editorial board as soon as we can instead of moving in like very fixed agile sprints right and i feel like it's kind of interesting in that there's a lot in here where you could if you were early and especially if you're kind of a startup founder or solopreneur working with a small team you could actually build most of your system on this right instead of going like hardcore scrum master daily stand-up type thing. It's, right. And there's a lot of similarities too, right? With uh, even some of the call callback stuff. Well, even like the like, daily scrum versus like yeah, exactly. daily, daily scrum versus like daily it's means. a lot of like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. but it's, it's kind of with a different purpose in mind almost. Where yeah. scrum is like, update it's like partly communication and partly unblocking and partly like get as much done as possible yeah and this i think ties in what you were saying which is also the like let's also be sane and Mm -hmm. manage some of these other uh inputs and distractions coming our way while we're doing all of it that's just fascinating to me i mean you know one of the things i found you know i'm in academia now so my my full-time job is as a professor but the last i just started to kind of get the hang of the meeting thing at the tail end of my last corporate job, <laughs> when in the weekly staff meetings, uh, you know, what I used to do was everybody go around. It was like show and tell. Right. right? Uh, yeah. Say yep. what you're doing. Blah, 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 right. <laughs> now it's like, okay, who needs help? Right. Yeah. Who yeah. needs help? Who needs to be unblocked? Right. You don't need to tell everybody what you're doing. If there's an announcement that needs to be made that, you know, hasn't better covered this way than email, then fine. But it's really a meeting is about... Sharing ideas, resolving conflicts, and unblocking. I mean, it seems like a lot of, and you made the point in the book too, where you said like meetings can cost a company thousands of dollars, if not more, in time, right? But like nobody's doing the metrics for that. So I just came out of doing two and a half years in a corporate job, and uh, I do not miss the 20 person meetings at all, where you just have 20 (laughs) people 
show and tell is exactly the right word for it. And yeah, it's incredible. There was one other guy. So I came from the startup world before and then was going into corporate. There's one other guy who was also from the startup world. And we would always joke that like they should just put a counter on the door of the meeting of how much this meeting is costing. Yep. You just take everyone's salary, multiply it by the amount of time. Yep. There's actually a Google Calendar plugin that does that. It makes really? sense. It yeah. makes sense. For startups. But here's the problem, though. That. Here's the problem, though. Startups are all, most, uh, not it's all, but most are already it. thinking about it. Big companies will be like, why don't we get anything? Or why are our projects taking so long? And it's like, because everybody's spending five hours a day in meetings. Like, <laughs> when do you actually work? That's right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's tough to, like, impose this. Like, you, you just took this book and, like, airdropped it into a big company. That, I think what you were getting at is like that doesn't change the culture, right? Yeah, it it's take, not the it, same as yeah. It, it's it's got to be a concerted effort again, bottom up. That Bison Plus is an inside job, yeah, and you mm-hmm. carry it with you wherever you go. And then the top down part is don't abuse a system like this because there are abusive chefs, mm-hmm. and yeah. a chef is just a, a chef just means chief. It just you know it doesn't it, the the word itself literally is so transferable right. from place to place and and it, it's really important because our chefs in the corporate sense because they're so sort of efficiency you know they value efficiency over quality in many cases whereas a chef in a kitchen can't do that like you know a Wiley Dufresne or a uh, Eric Repair cannot fetish efficiency over everything because then the ultimate the ultimate end of place of that is McDonald's right? <laughs> yeah. um, and we don't we That's don't, we don't pay for McDonald's uh, you know so there are corporate chefs who let me put it this way in a typical kitchen the chef is not only responsible for the efficiency of getting orders in from the floor and getting them out to the floor he's also responsible for managing the flow of work in the kitchen so that that work can happen at a pace that's not too slow and not too fast because if it happens too fast every everything suffers and then nobody's happy so the seasoned chef in the kitchen is really good at that but the corporate chef is so good at funneling work into the staff and horrible at pacing work I, can, I If I had a dime for every time I heard a boss say to me, just make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because, you know, we were talking about the goal and the theory of constraints earlier. And that's one of the core lessons in the book is that if you just shove more work into the top of the funnel, it is not going to improve the overall system. It's going to make it worse. And one of the hardest things to do as a manager, and it sounds like something that chefs are great at, is managing the inflow at the top so that you're maximizing what's coming out at the end without wasting capacity, without overstressing, you know, the core parts. Sitting on inventory or wasting supplies or, yeah. Especially with something like this where inventory is going to spoil or go cold in five minutes, right? You really can't have it. You have to have this perfectly tuned system and it's stressful you know this is a a a job in the kitchen you know the 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 work of being a cook and especially the work being a work of being a chef is something that really takes an incredible amount of effort and takes a great toll on the mind and the body and that ultimately is another lesson of this book is that excellence really does require work there's no shortcut to it there's no shortcut to being you know like great 
all the time. Um, and it is a true balance between, and I covered this in this chapter on finishing actions. There is a continuum between perfect quality on one hand and perfect delivery on the other. And the chef needs to be somewhere in the middle of that, right? Um, you, again, you focus just on delivery, then everything's pretty much shoddy. You're McDonald's, right? And then right, yeah. perfect quality, you'll never get it done. And I, I, I tell you, I live that every day with my students. Um, I teach at Tisch, which is one of the greatest yep. art schools in the country. And I teach artists. I teach artists history and I teach them how to write. But more importantly, I teach them how to organize their thoughts and their, their study habits. And I saw it in my career as a record producer. And I see it with these young artists you cannot just iterate, 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 keep working, keep working, and never deliver. You have to deliver. Ultimately, you have to be focused on when do I get this thing out the door? Lauren Michaels of uh, Saturday Night Live, you know, famously said, we're not, we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's 1130. Yeah. yeah. We do our <laughs> yeah, best to be, we do our best to be ready. We do our best to be good, but we also live in a world where we have to be on by 11.30, you know? Yeah, well, since you brought it up, actually, I, we're, we, we did exactly what we expected, which was we found one ingredient. We went super deep on it for most of the, the show, so I, it's too bad we can't dig we into all We've bounced around. We've bounced around. We've around. It's pretty good, but yeah. I was going to say, since you brought it up, finishing actions oh, man. is... I, that was another kind of that was a great, changer for me. So that's my problem. My problem is not starting usually. I love starting projects, yeah. and I usually start them fairly well. Right. But my problem is I start too many projects, right? And I don't finish them. Well, I love right. This so I idea. love this ninety percent finished is worth the same as zero percent finished. <laughs> I love that. And I was like, that makes so much sense. Well, the cooking analogies are so helpful. Yeah, right? it's exactly. like, well, of course, right? It's I think it came up on another episode, but we were talking about like writing and. Yeah. I think I was not sure if I had published a post or not or was sitting in drafts <laughs> because I have so many drafts sitting. Yep. And yep. Uh, and we were talking about it in the context of inventory, right? But this is essentially the same idea where if, it's, Similar idea. if you're done with 90% of the post, it's not it's the same as 0% yep. done. Well, and it's it also, matter. I mean, tying a little bit into what we talked about with Deep Work before where I think in, on the one hand, we can be critical of this idea that you should be able to just wake up and spend three hours blocked off from everybody else just working on your own, right? That doesn't really work in any kind of teamwork. <laughs> yeah. But some of the finishing action stuff actually makes it way easier to jump in and out of flow because if you're tying everything up really neatly every time you stop, yeah. it's so much easier to pick up again. To come back. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. You don't spend half an hour reloading everything into yeah. your brain, right? You know right where you left off and right where you can keep going from. Yeah, and then organizing your physical and also your virtual space to help those things, yeah. right? Uh, and I think Ernest Hemingway said that, you know, he ends every writing session by writing the first sentence of the next chapter yeah. right. as a way to sort of prompt him That's to so resume. Yeah. And, you know, I find one of the tools that I use from this chapter um, almost every day is uh, what I call the intentional break, which is yeah. uh, a little spreadsheet that I made for myself in Excel where I simply... I mark the start time of my work session, the end time of my work session, and then whenever I take a break, I log in and I log out, almost like punching a clock. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, here's the thing. I am not limiting myself to how many times I can punch in and punch out. I am not guilting myself for punching in and punching out. If I feel like I just, oh, I can't, I can't write anymore. I've got to go check Twitter. You know, <laughs> I will log out. I will check Twitter. My price for doing that is simply 
officially logging out and then officially logging. So you're in. not lying to yourself that you're working. During well, that time, not right? lying like to yourself, but it's, I know it's, I make that mistake all the time. I'll go yeah. check social. It is not so much about lying to yourself or not lying to yourself. It is about being conscious of what stops you mm-hmm. and how you get started. And hopefully as you go through this and as you see, okay, and I have like a little percentage calculator so I can tell in a given work session how much of that time I actually spent on the page. Right? Mm, yeah. I, I did this today, right? And today I got an 81% in two hours. I spent 81% of those two hours actually in front of the page writing or at least with my hands on the keys thinking about That's writing. That's probably quite a bit higher than most people. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sounds yeah good. but, you know, yeah. even in the 70s, it's good. If I go down to the 50 or 60% period, it's usually because I'm distracted by mm. something. But I may find that it's not an outer distraction that's bothering me. It's that I am a little fearful of writing this chapter because I don't know exactly what is supposed to happen and I haven't really thought about it enough. So maybe instead of writing, what I need to do is make a spreadsheet of all the different things that can happen in this scene or this, right? And then, so it's the act of being honest about time. And we come back to this idea of being honest with space, honest with time, honest with people, right? If you're honest and just look at it, not like, oh my God, I got my, got to get myself up to 90%. That's insane. Nobody has a hundred percent efficiency. Nobody, if you have 90, a 90% work session efficiency, you know, you're a freak. Like, <laughs> what it's about is figuring out, doing the really hard work of why am I stopping? How do I confront the things that make me afraid? The things that make me tired? The things that make me angry? And get myself to a place where I feel at least, if not more in control, more aware of who I am and what it is the hell that I'm doing here. Um, so the intentional break is that's what I call that. It's an uh, it's it's just a way of tracking what you do, not in the Fitbit sense of oh let me do more. <laughs> it's how does this information help me to conquer my blocks and to remove blocks? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes yeah. a ton of sense. I know that we have to be cognizant of your schedule, so. Uh, is there any like last couple thoughts that you wanted to get out there that we didn't touch on throughout this? Well, I will say this. Getting back to this whole idea of body-mind, right? Mm-hmm. A system for your body and a system for your mind. One of the real... One of the, the, the real manifestations of this in this system is this idea that the calendar and the list have to be linked. And that if we're just making lists, we're not doing the job. And I will sort of explain why. And actually... My wife, who is my greatest editor and one of my greatest teachers, you know, in sort of discussing and sharing this book in its in its uh, editing stages with her, I was sort of talking about, you know, the, the need to have these two things. And she spelled it out so great. She said, you know, it's about squaring the mind and the body. Because when you make a list, it's just about your mind. It's about... What your mind wants to do. And oh my God, my mind wants to do a hundred different things right now. I, I could show you my list right now. It's endless, right? But your body has to execute those things. Your body has to be in a place and a time 
to do those things. And each of those things take time, right? And they may even take a place, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, David Allen gets at this a little bit, but I don't feel like he followed through with the explicitness of this idea, which is, you know, you have to square your list with the calendar because you can't do 30 things in one day. And if you don't pick the five things that you can do, then life is going to pick them for you. And you may not like what life picks, right? Yeah. If you want to be more in aware and in control um, about what you're doing and just to be honest with yourself and to give yourself less agita every day, you know, having the same list that you can't complete, take the time, take 10 minutes out of that daily needs, right? To square your list with your calendar. These are the things that I can do today. And, you know, a lot of people fear if I have five things to do and I put them all on my calendar, oh my God, I'm I'm so anal about this. I, I can't stand having every bit of time blocked off. Well, then that, you need to account for that too. You actually need time to not do anything, right? To have blank spaces in your yep. calendar, to not schedule things. Uh, you need enough process time and you need enough immersive time. Um, and the more people you manage, the more process time you're going to have to schedule for yourself. So to me, thinking of it as a mind and body thing is really, really helpful because ultimately what we don't want to do in our lives is just endlessly flog ourselves for being human. Yeah. You know, we are not machines. And we're entering an interesting world of, of AI where, you know, these sort of artificial minds, uh, may be able to do a lot of things without having the burden of a body at all. Yeah. But as long as there's a world for people, this will be true. You know, when I was writing the book, I would often say, man, I don't know if this is any good, but I know that it's true. Right. So I do know that this is true for people. And mise en place is not a crazy efficiency program it is really a way of life for people who value themselves and value people and also value the planet value each other to me that's the best manifestation of what mise en place is it's not crazy preparing everything in front of, you know before everything it's really about a time and a place for everything that's exactly what mise en place means everything in its place and so that's the new version of this book that's coming out in december and awesome. we will definitely link to that in all the show notes that we'll have online at majorthingpodcast.com. Is there anywhere else you want people to find you? Twitter? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Charnas, D-A-N-C-H-A-R-N-A-S. Or you can always get at dancharnas.com. Sweet. Cool. And then uh, Dan also has another book called The Big Payback, which we'll also link to on the website. And uh, yeah. Definitely, clean. definitely say hi to Dan. Grab a copy of the book. We'll have our notes up as always. As always, yep. And yeah, Dan, excellent. What an honor! This is this has been one of the greatest conversations I've ever had about this. Book. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> no, Kudos to you guys. Oh, this is this was a ton this of fun. Was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it felt like it felt like we were taking a class from you. Like this is awesome. You are in a class. Yeah. Room. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll sign off for now. Yep. And Dan, thank you so much again. Yeah, thanks, thank Dan. you. All right. And we're back. That was fun. That was I, awesome. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's it's definitely pretty different from our normal format, uh, much less us bantering. And I think we went on zero tangents 
maybe I, one or two. That's possible. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. It's like, well, we had to, we had to seem professional. Sorry for guys. Our new friend. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. If you were listening for tangents, there will be plenty more in the next episode. Exactly. <laughs> but no, that was cool. Yeah. I think like that was an interesting form of, uh, tell us what you think we'd love to see, you know, did you love it? Hate it? Yeah. Ambivalence, whatever, you know, whatever you thought. Um, it was an experiment for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you guys liked it, we'll do some more author episodes and uh, see who else we can get to yeah. join us. Yeah, I think either doing more author episodes like that or, you know, another thing that could be kind of fun is if we can find an author of a book that we have done, but who wants to come on and talk about another book. Right. Because I feel like the challenge with having the author for their book is that like maybe they have to defend or feel like they have to talk about it a ton, but they could also provide really interesting insights on other books. Oh, you know who has an open invitation for this? Taleb. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Taleb, if you want to come on to talk about any other book, including yours, you're also welcome to talk about yours, but any yeah. other book, we'd love to have you on. We should do like Irrational Exuberance or something. <laughs> I have to love No, we on. should do like Outliers. Outliers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would like pay money to have Taleb be on the show oh to gosh. talk about Outliers. No, I feel like that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> or like Hillary Clinton's biography or something like that. Yeah, like, or autobiography go. or whatever. The one that she just put out. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, I bet like Taleb would have a field day with Oh that my gosh, that would be so entertaining. <laughs> I haven't read that to be honest, but like, yeah. yeah just does not like the Clintons. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was good. And I, you know, as always, all of the show notes and everything are going to be online at majorthingpodcast.com. And we also have some exciting news for everyone listening. So we uh, reached out to a couple of companies that we have some relationship with already, companies that... And some affinity for their products. Yeah, and affinity for their products, yeah. products that we already use, yeah. things that we like. And uh, we're not going to be doing the like pre-roll, post-roll, like buy this product. We're, we're not selling out. Here. Yeah, we're not totally yet. selling out yet. <laughs> but we do have a couple of like great deals set up. So one of the things that we're pretty much always drinking when we're doing these episodes is this mushroom coffee by Four Sigmatic. That's so so it is really good. And let's see, I should, I should get my box of it so I can talk about it a little more. Yeah, because I have a, I have a lot of questions about it actually. Because I you always serve it to me, but I have like no clue what's in it. And it whatever it is, it's good. It leads me on a lot of tangents. It is good. Yeah, it's good for tangents. I might just see the caffeine. But, <laughs> but yeah, so basically this is just like it tastes pretty similar to coffee. It's got a little bit of that mushroomy flavor. Uh, only about 40 milligrams of caffeine. So if you're drinking coffee, that's anywhere from 80 to 150 milligrams. So this is quite a bit less more, strong. more like tea. Yeah, much closer to tea. Like a good black tea yeah. will have 40 to 80 milligrams. Green tea, maybe 30 milligrams. So this I still is, find it energizes me. Yeah, well, yeah, I think like part of that's the mushroom yeah. side, right? Which is cool because it's energizing without being overly stimulating or overly caffeinating so i really like this i don't drink coffee anymore it just makes me way too jittery so i drink this instead it's really good with a bit of mct oil so if you want to like put in a little mct oil or butter if you want to do like bulletproof style that's really good and then i feel like a lot of people listening to this have heard of the mushroom coffee uh by four sigmatic because they might have heard it on tim ferris whatever there's another one though that is really good that i like which is their cordyceps mushroom elixir okay i've never had that yeah so this one's cool 
cool because it's very physically energizing without any caffeine. And so it's basically like a mushroom pre-workout. That's really cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I had it before I went to the gym yesterday and it works very well. I'll uh, have to try that. So yeah, and, and it's it's not it's no caffeine. So I could have it at like 5 p.m. and still be fine. And so you find that it doesn't prevent you from going to bed. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I had no right. issue falling asleep, yeah. which is nice because I usually work out in the evenings. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I definitely recommend that the cordyceps, the mushroom coffee, and you can get that at either our site. So I think we're, yeah, I think we totally should have up by now. Yeah, yeah. Like made you think podcast.com. It took a while to get the email list. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all coming it's together. All, yeah. coming together. <laughs> and, uh, or you can just go to foursigmatic.com slash think, yep. and that'll show you some of their products and you can get them there. We've also got uh, perfect keto and kettle and fire. So if you go to perfectketocom slash think or kettle on fire.com slash think kettle on fire is doing something pretty cool. Yeah. Kettle on fire is actually giving people 20% off. So, so list only for listeners of this podcast only for listeners. Yeah. If you yeah. go to kettle on fire.com slash think they sell shelf stable bone broth. So this has been kind of an interesting thing that I've been getting into recently, which is trying to get closer to that ancestral diet ideal, right? It's like future episode, by the way, future episode. Yeah. Well, actually, if you listen to the anti-fragile, yeah, we talked, uh, episode, a, lot we talked a lot about yep. it, right? Which is that there's all of these modern interventions in health. Like don't make sense, right? Yeah. It's like, you shouldn't be taking like a modern drug to solve an ancient issue yeah. of just like eating well, living clean, just like probably for psychological problems, like your not all psychological problems, but many of the day-to-day psychological issues that all of us have like anxiety and things like that. Yeah. There are ancient texts exactly. that talk about them. Like or way of zen or things like that so the nice thing about uh bone broth uh, which kettle on fire sells is that since it's made from kind of like boiling bones distilling uh, a lot of the marrow and stuff into this broth you get a lot of like collagen and other nutrients that you don't normally get in your day-to-day diet yeah you don't get it from eating just meat well the thing that's really cool is like every ancient culture made full use of the animal exactly so this is and this was one way that they did that that makes total sense. Oh, yeah. And, and most of us aren't of getting it in our exactly. diet anymore. It and it's really important for uh, just a lot of bodily functions. For men, it's actually really important for testosterone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, testosterone, like physical strength, a lot of like mental stuff, just like general mental health. These kind of like super fatty parts of the animal that we don't eat anymore are really good for you. Yep. And bone broth is a pretty easy way to get a lot of those benefits. So cool. that's kettleandfire.com slash think. Check I that out. I will be using that discount as yeah. well. So. well here, I, sh- I should just give you one. I've got some extra. So. <laughs> <laughs> then the other one is perfect keto. So this was a little so I don't know much about perfect keto actually. Can you maybe you should explain it to me as well. Yeah. So <laughs> if anybody follows me on Twitter, I've been doing a ketogenic diet for about two weeks now. And a ketogenic diet is basically uh, super low carbs, so fewer than 25 grams of carbs a day, and then 70% or more of your calories from fat. So right now I eat about 70, 75% calories from fat, another 20, 25% from protein, and then 5% or less from carbohydrates. So that actually protein percentage stays pretty similar to what it would have been mm-hmm. in for most, I mean, not for most people, but for a lot of people who eat a lower carb diet. Yeah. It's fairly. Like, so you just basically lower the carbs even further significantly and lower the, the carbs significantly. The yeah. Interesting. And how do you, where do you get all the fat from? Yeah. So in a typical day, I'll usually have three or four tablespoons of like a pure fat. So I'll wake up and I'll put some butter or MCT oil in my mushroom coffee yep. or in my tea. I actually really like if you have like Earl Grey or Lapsang Souchong oh, or Pu'er tea. So good. Yeah. And if you put some <laughs> butter in it, it, it tastes really good and it cuts some of the bitterness. 
sweetness of the tea and okay. gives it like a nice kind of richer flavor. So that's really good. So I'll do that in the morning. And then at meals, as long as you have like a good fat with it, like avocado, or you have like a salad with a lot of olive oil, and then you have a fattier cut of meat, you're going to stay pretty close to the ratio. And then at the end of the day, I'll just look back on my macros because I'm tracking them in an app as I'm yeah, going. Yeah, right. Course, yeah. And then if I look back at my macros for the day and I'm really low on fat or something, I'll just supplement more fat at the end of the day to get it up there. So like have are some pecans or are there better fats than others according to this? Or is it like, cause you know how like with paleo, they're a little down on dairy. Yeah. Right. So is this, is it like, so if you have regular butter, for example, in mm-hmm. your coffee, is that fine? So it depends. There, there's a couple of reasons to do keto. Uh, one of them is for health issues. And this is where it originally came from was it was originally discovered as a treatment for epilepsy and seizures where doctors uh, actually literally thousands of years ago, if you look in, um, I want to say Hippocrates's writings, he says that they discovered that fasting people cured them of their seizures, right? Because when you fast somebody, they go into a state called ketosis, which is when your body's running, running on fat, fat instead yeah. of glucose, you know, instead of carbs. And so ever since, you know, 2000 years ago, we've known that fasting people will cure their seizures, right? Or at least significantly diminish that them. Reminds, that reminds me of, I don't know if it was anti-fragile or somewhere else I was reading where it was like, uh, animals a lot of times when they're ill Mm -hmm. will not eat yeah and it's like an instinct to i don't know what fasting does i don't know enough about like the biology of fasting but it seems to be a good way to cure yourself yeah well there's two processes going on there so when you fast you induce ketosis which we'll get into more in a second here but that's you know where your body is running off the fats uh and you also induce autophagy which is when your body starts breaking down bad cell matter killing it off uh and there's actually decently compelling research that if you do an extended fast like three to five days a few times a year you will regularly purge your body of all precancerous cells so we can't that's what i need to start so this year was my first year fasting Mm -hmm. uh 27 now actually by the time this episode's out the blog post will be out but i was just gonna like write a reflections on what that has been like so i did 20 fasting days and 60 vegetarian days oh cool um and usually those did not overlap yeah uh yeah 60 60 was the number it'd be hard to be doing vegetarian on a daily fast right exactly and still get (laughs) enough like energy and stuff so um the fast that i did were all 24 hours and i think in hindsight what i would rather do is less often but longer so like three day ones and like the longest one i've done i have done a 48 hour one this i did that this year but i just counted as two days right because four yeah so it's two days but um I think I would do the three to five day one and maybe like three times a year or four times a year or something like a once a quarter kind of thing. That's sort of the recommendation I've heard is like yeah. do it once a quarter, do three to five days. And actually, in a weird way, I noticed like I feel different towards the end of the 24 hour fast. And then I'm like, oh, well, I'm about to eat. So. The first 24, 48 hours are the worst. Yeah. After that, it gets way easier. Yeah. That's what you told me when. Yeah. I think when so, you or it was in your article mm-hmm. that you've written about this. Yeah. Because I've done a couple of five day ones now and it's really like you get past those first two days and then you just feel great. So doing five days is no harder than doing three days interesting yeah so it's yeah. like you might as well you might as well just like keep going get the full benefits yeah. yeah um so that's one side of the fasting benefit that food tastes so good but after it really does. <laughs> <laughs> you have a whole new appreciation yeah i always uh, love that feeling after like that first meal even if it's only 24 hours yeah it just reminds you of like like you almost get that thanksgiving feeling mm, exactly it's like it's, a it's feast. like yeah, yeah it's like go. i ate less than 24 hours it's like or like 24 <laughs> hours ago i shouldn't be this thankful for food but i am yeah <laughs> no know? it totally changed yeah. your relationship with it <laughs> uh-huh. if you're eating like 
every few hours, it's just like, ah, give me more food. Like, yep. yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, sorry for tangent, no, hey, during we're, our we're doing tangents and the tangents. It's great. It's like tangentception up in here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> strange loops, strange loops. Mm, <laughs> God bless your back. Yeah. So the, the other benefit of fasting is it puts the body in a state of ketosis where it's running off of fats instead of, uh, it's running off of ketones instead of glucose, right? Glucose we get from carbohydrates. We get some for protein ketones. We get primarily from fat and from our own body. So the benefit of running off of ketones is that in a lot of ways, your body actually performs better. So it cures a lot of these strange diseases that we don't have good explanations for. It can do a lot for even like dermatological issues, right? So if you have any skin conditions, uh, it can have a big effect. People who have seizures, people who have migraines, it, it, it affects all these diseases or these chronic illnesses in strange ways that we don't totally understand. But then it also increases like individual performance. So your or just like performance in general. So your brain actually runs better on ketones than on glucose. It takes a bit to switch over, but when it does, they've actually seen fairly significant increases in cognitive ability based on the level of ketones in blood, right? And so they they did some research and it was like a seven, eight percent increase in cognitive performance for every one millimolar per gram of ketones in blood. So you can test yourself when you're doing ketogenic diet to see how high your ketone levels are getting. And then uh, you will actually feel a cognitive difference. So I've noticed that when I'm at the higher end, which is like three to four, sharper. I, I feel way sharper. It's the way I've been describing it is that it's basically like taking Adderall, but without the without like tunnel vision <laughs> yeah, and without it being like horrible for you. Uh, so yeah, that, that's ketosis. And you don't have to fast to get into it. You can do this diet, which is, will also so get is you. the diet meant something that meant to be something that you just do indefinitely kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so it's kind of like paleo in that sense, where exactly. it's just like a lifestyle kind of thing. It's, it's not like it's not like a cleanse or like something you do for a week and then people do it as that. Uh you can do it to like lose a bunch of weight. If you go to Reddit's keto community, I think it's just R Keto, okay. there are so many success stories of people who are just obese going on a keto diet and losing tens even like hundreds of pounds uh it's pretty wild if you just go through some of the top posts but you can also just do it as a lifestyle so there's also the like keto gains community which is people who are doing it as a lifestyle choice for health and they're like getting stronger and more physically fit yeah that's like probably the worst myth with keto is that you can't put on muscle or do any physical stuff because you don't have glucose and your body needs glucose for fuel it doesn't it just has to get used to using ketones for that instead because historically like if we were living on the plains in africa we would switch back and forth between using glucose and fat Yep. all the time yep. we don't do that anymore so it takes a couple months to get back into that state. funny enough over the summer i was even just this is amazing that it's even in like our parents lifetime that this was the case i was talking so we had um we had mangoes at my house uh, not like on not growing but like we just brought them yeah. from like the grocery store and my dad told us a story about how like i think we ate like two mangoes between four people and my dad told us the story about how when he was a kid growing up in india it was based on like the harvest times right for mangoes mm. like when they were when they would be ripe or not it wasn't like you just get them any time of year yeah <laughs> like we can now right right right. so it'd be based on the time of year but then they like go they you know they go bad right so he said that growing up there would literally be days where they would buy like a like big bucket of mangoes so like 40 mangoes or something between like and they had like six people in their family so between like six people and they would eat them within like two days but then it was like you wouldn't have them for the rest of the year. Yeah. So it was. It made me think of. Made me think. Made you think. Huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose, but uh, it made me think about how um, you know going back to what you were saying about like the planes and stuff and switching back and forth. There were pro- like it's not that we didn't have glucose. Right. At, like early humans didn't. It's not that they didn't have glucose, but they probably had it actually much more rarely than these fat sources, which were yeah. all around you. You know, fat is like fruit is really only ripe during certain times of year, right. and it's only it's available in certain scarce. spots. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's like when you got it, you probably binged on it like exactly. crazy, which is why probably we crave sugar so much. Right. You know, the more you eat it, the more you want it. And like, cause it's rare resource in theory, yeah. not anymore, <laughs> but in theory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, historically, if you found something sweet, that meant that you found a super calorie dense source of food. Yep. And you should, and you should just that. eat as much as you yep. can. And right? then because it builds up fat. Yeah. Right. Because it helps you create fat stores, which yep. you can then use later for ketones to feel yourself through literally weeks of starvation. Yep. Right. So we have this difference now between what's scarce and what's what's Abundant. plentiful yeah, yeah. versus and what our body thinks are our is. genetic yeah. yeah predispositions are making us fat yeah anyway so sorry what this all comes back to <laughs> is you can live on a ketogenic diet be totally healthy happy but it is kind of difficult so there's a couple things that make it hard one just like the society that we live in is not set up for a ketogenic diet sure. every almost most restaurants will be serving like fairly high carb foods so it's a little tricky eating out sometimes yeah. but then also getting into the keto diet kind of sucks mm. because depending on how glucose adapted you are you could go through a few days to a few weeks of what's called like the keto flu okay. where you basically are just wiped out it's like having the flu you're exhausted cranky tired you don't want to get out of bed you just feel totally physically fatigued and and that's just your body like fighting to use glucose instead of ketones. Like it takes a while to kick it back into that. Uh, once you kick over, you feel amazing. You're but fine. Making that yeah. initial kick kind of sucks. Interesting. So there's a few ways you can get around that. And one of them is fasting first, right? That helps a little bit. The other way is by taking what's called exogenous ketones, which are literally ketones, particularly beta hydroxybutyrate, which you can just drink. And then that gives your body ketones as fuel that it immediately can start using to kick you into ketosis so way faster. So you don't have to go through the whole flu. That's good. Yeah. So that is Perfect Keto's main product. Got it. Is these exogenous ketones. Um, and they have a couple other benefits too. So uh, one, it lets you get into ketosis really quickly. Two, if you're doing a keto diet and you cheat, right? Or you have a, you know, a like questionable meal, you can take it afterwards to significantly mitigate the damage because you don't want to go out of ketosis and have to go back in again. You'll, you'll get back again. in pretty quickly in yep. a day or two. It won't be as bad as the first time, but yep. it'll still be kind of bad. So it'll help you avoid the penalties of cheating. And then also if you take it when you're already in ketosis, it will like knock you up to the next level. So if you've got, if you're at like 1.5 millimolars, you might knock up to like 2.5 or three. So you get more cognitive so effects. Better, yep. Yeah. Or like <laughs> I took it the other day when I was already at 3.8 <laughs> and then I, I just felt I was like, I was just like rocket fuel. Were you like, like, I, yeah. like, I got so much stuff done. It was amazing. And there was no crash. It just like That's stopped later. I was like, okay, this is just phenomenal yeah. <laughs> i'm so happy right? it was a superpower yeah exactly like superpower yeah. uh the other thing they have that, that that i really like is this matcha mct oil powder okay. so another slight tangent but mct oil is you know it, it's a oil made from coconuts it's just like olive oil yeah and we're having some in our uh, mushroom coffee right now yep. and mct oil medium chain triglyceride oil it's very good for staying ketosis it's got a lot of benefits for brain health and things the problem with it is that you can have a lot of digestive issues <laughs> if you drink it uh as you were sharing with yeah me as i was sharing with earlier. you i think I, I had like two tablespoons within an hour once when i first started and drinking it a significant amount we have like a half a tea maybe half a half a tablespoon i've got a full tablespoon of mine okay. but well, but i'm like i'm more adapted to level, it yeah next level yeah <laughs> if, you're, if you're not totally adapted to it and you have too much of this stuff you will just have diarrhea for hours like it is not fun the powder solves those digestive issues really okay yeah so if you have mct oil powder you'll have none of those issues you can have a tablespoon or two and be like totally fine and then they flavored it with matcha 
matcha and it's delicious. Yeah. Oh, it's, and so it's really tasty. And so what I'll do actually is I use athletic greens as well. Not a sponsor yet, (laughs) but so when I wake up in the morning, I'll have a shake of athletic greens and the matcha MCT oil powder. It's delicious. Uh, a good way to start. It's a great way to start. Yeah. yeah. So like I'll, I'll pretty much every day I'll wake up and I'll have the exogenous ketones and the matcha plus athletic greens. And that's just like a great two morning cocktails and then go into the mushroom coffee and yep. it's like and you're got, like probably rolling oh yeah i'm that. rolling I'm yeah great and you can do that for hours and hours and hours we should do a maybe a mini episode at some yeah. point about morning routine yeah that would be cool like that'd be Actually, really cool there's a really good book yeah Daily Rituals. yes yeah by uh and i've talked to the author once um his name's like mason something okay i've talked to yeah. him by email not in person but that would be fun i bet we could get him on the show yeah i think he lives in new york actually because it was before i moved here but i remember talking to him about something perfect yeah you and that's a really up. interesting book too it is interesting it's yeah really it's cool, cool to see how all those people work yeah basically it's about like um if you haven't read it it's a basically a, a very easy read it goes into like all these historically great figures or well-known figures, I guess, and talks about their daily routines. Super interesting. Yeah. But cool. yes. Yeah, so foursigmatic.com slash think for the mushroom coffee for the cordyceps pre-workout. Kettleandfire.com slash think for getting your bone broth, getting back to your ancestral health. And then perfectketo.com slash think if you want to play around with ketosis. Or actually, this is the other thing I forgot to mention, even if you're not eating a ketogenic diet, you can take exogenous ketones. It'll still help. To get into ketosis for like a period. Oh, um, cool. So you'll you'll fall back out of it if, if you're not getting on the diet, but you'll get a lot of the cognitive benefits and stuff for like four to six hours. So even you can if at you're least not get some of keto. that. Yeah. And especially if you're doing intermittent fasting. To, or, or if somebody is trying to get uh maybe reduce their coffee intake or something yeah it's a really good good substitute substitute without the crash yeah Yeah. so definitely recommend checking all that stuff out like we said these are all products that we actually use we're literally using three of them or we have used three of them in the last hour yeah the mushroom coffee yeah well the mushroom coffee i was i was drinking my matcha in the morning athletic greens shake when neil got here uh that's our rule for the sponsorships by the way exactly only things we use yeah things we use and actually support (laughs) (laughs) so uh so yeah, yeah check all of those out um and then obviously links to the show notes are on the site, majorthinkpodcast.com. Uh, we'll have links to some other Amazon stuff and like the books that we recommended everything as well yep. as the products at majorthink.com slash support. Yep. And again, if you haven't signed up for the email list yet, definitely do that. We're going to be sending out the bonus material for the episodes, you know, the little pre-recordings. We're going to be sending out the giveaways and stuff when we do them. We'll let you know about the books we're doing shows on in advance, let you know about new episodes, send out other fun stuff. Who knows? Oh, and I suppose we should also say that if you're doing your holiday show, Shopping. You should definitely click you should on definitely. the Amazon link on Made You Think. Literally any podcast. Amazon link. Yeah. Any Amazon link <laughs> yes, you click actually, on. Even if we, you don't buy that product. Even if you don't buy that product, if you're going to buy anything on Amazon, just go click on one of the books and we'll get about 7% of yeah, and Jeff Bezos is already rich get. enough. He exactly. can afford he, the 7%. I think he's like the richest man in the world. Yeah. Right? So you know so, what? Like, And it doesn't cost you any more to exactly, do that. It costs so, you the exact same yes, amount. Yes. You're paying the same amount. You get to support the show yeah. and, uh, and we Jeff can, Bezos makes a little bit less money. And I think that's good <laughs> for everybody. And we, and we can <laughs> afford more books. Yes, exactly. And more episodes and more cool stuff. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I think uh, the only other thing, if you're enjoying it, leave a review. Those really help more people hear about it as well. So, yeah. Anything else, Matt? I think that's it. We will see you all next time. See you next time. Cheers.